It's that time of the week again. It's that time when the latest episode of Digital Kill the Radio Star drops. Drop! It's time to waste another hour or so with David and Chris as they spout out more of their worthless music knowledge. It's time to hear them discuss the music of their youth. As well as the music of today. So kick back, relax, and have some fun with David and Chris. Digital Kill the Radio Star starts right now. (laughs) Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Digital Kill the Radio Star podcast. This is David. I want to thank everybody for joining us this week, and I appreciate everybody listening last week to our Megadeth episode uh, and a big thank you to Brian Chapman from uh, the Potter Than Hell podcast for coming on. Chris and I really enjoyed it. Uh, Brian did a great job, and uh, we got good feedback on that, and people seem to really enjoy that episode. So um, I'm here this week. Chris isn't with me, but uh, I have a familiar voice uh, back with us. Uh, my buddy Kyle Knoll is here. Uh, if you remember correctly, he has done a... Uh, episode with me after a Noel Gallagher concert. He did a, a Dark Side of the Moon episode, an Appetite for Destruction uh, episode with me. So Kyle is back for the fourth time, and uh, he's always great to have on here. He's a big uh, music buff, as you know, and uh, much more articulate than me, and so uh, he kind of classes it up when uh, Chris isn't here. So uh, <laughs> welcome back, Kyle. Thanks so much, man. I'm becoming the Steve Martin to SNL, right? I mean, so four that's times right, coming back, right. everybody's going to think I'm a cast member. Right, right. <laughs> or like, uh, you know, back in the day, um, what was the female comedian? Joan Rivers used to like, oh, yeah, yeah. host um, The Tonight well, Show. Know, and Candace Burke, I thought you were going to say SNL, but uh, Candace Burke, what was her name? Candace- Bergman? Bergen? Berg- yeah. <laughs> Frog? Fraud? Fraud? Um, see, she used to host that a lot, and that's kind of surprising because she doesn't strike me as a, you know, like a comedian, you know, right. in the same sense as Steve Martin does. But anyway, no, glad to be back. I'm, I'm, I always love it when you, when you ask me if I've, I mean, I love getting the text like, hey, could you do the top five Pink Floyd songs? I'm like, man, I just did it this morning. Like, yes, right. I can do it. <laughs> of course, just record me this time, right? So Kyle came over uh, last night, and uh, we went out to eat, and then uh, we came back uh, to my house, and. Uh, we got the uh, got the vinyl out and um, listened to a lot of Pink Floyd and uh, another band that Kyle um, uh, has has turned me on to by the name of Airbag. Now they're from Norway, right? Yeah, they're from Norway. Yeah, and actually two. So I'm trying to turn you on to two: Stephen Wilson and Airbag. So we need to hit both those. Yeah. So Airbag, I think, is is really will fit into Pink Floyd if if you know we have a lot of Pink Floyd fans listening, which I think we will. Just give like a brief like overview of the band Airbag because they they sound terrific. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I'm I'm gonna have trouble with the brief part, but so Airbag, I ran into them. I was following. I'm a guitarist. I've been playing guitar for about 28 years or so, 
And uh, I, uh, there's a website called gilmorish.com, and it, it is the go-to website to, to learn about David Gilmore's tone, what amps and guitars and effects he used, literally on an album-by-album album breakdown, and including some of the, the major commercial releases uh, that, were, that were live, uh, live concerts. And so anyway, Bjorn Rees is the person, or R-I-I-S is, is his last name. I don't, I don't know if that's how you pronounce it or not. Um, but anyway, he uh, he's the the webmaster of that, and um, great guy. I've interacted with him a couple of times through uh, just him giving reviews of different pedals, and I would ask him questions or whatever. And so, um, anyway, he cross posted, uh, and he said, "Listen, guys, I hate to do this on my Good Morris website, but uh, I thought y'all might really appreciate knowing that my band Airbag uh, it got signed." And so then I, I checked out Airbag Sound, I think is what the website was called at the time, and um, they I had. Uh, downloaded all of the, at that point they had just gotten signed but they hadn't yet released the album yet so I downloaded all the things that they had for free on there EPs that they had recorded um, and really good, great quality stuff and it sounded to me for the first time ever I had found not a Pink Floyd tribute band or cover band but like a band that really captured the essence of Pink Floyd the atmosphere that Pink Floyd creates in a modern band and so I was crazy excited that I had found that and so they've since released four albums, um, uh, four albums under the label. They do have a couple of EPs that you can't get anymore. Uh, Identity, All Rights Removed, which is the first almost full album we listened to. We, we kind of tanked out after that one. Um, uh, Greatest Show on Earth and then Disconnected. And Bjorn Reese has got two albums that he's done solo, uh, Lullabies in a Car Crash and Coming Home. And so um, anyway, if you like Pink Floyd Animals era stuff, You've got to check out Airbag for sure. Do they ever tour over here? Man, okay, they're like right now, basically. So yes, his cruise to the edge that that goes out of Florida. Um, they're they're playing that right now. Either are well, not right now, but in the next week or so, whenever that actually goes. Uh, the only that's the only time I've ever seen them over here. They played this year and they played two years ago. Do they? Do they actually play a lot in Europe, or are they, they just do one tour. of these bands that just records and that's it? So Bjorn just quit his day job, so to speak, uh, to to be able to focus 100% on music. Um, and so it was probably afforded uh, to them because their last album that got released, Disconnected, got picked up by Prague Magazine. And not that they have never had national coverage before or international coverage before in a magazine, but there was just something different about this. And you can tell there was a lot more... Um, I guess maybe marketing support behind it, and so he just quit his day job. They're but they're not extensively touring. I mean, I, I follow them, and even though I can't go to a concert in Norway, at least not without great expense, uh, they're not. They don't tour a lot, but they do every once in a while. They've just never done a U.S. But as soon as they do a U.S. tour, I don't care where it is, I'm going. Yeah, it was, it, I, we were listening. When we were listening to it last night. I and I kept telling you, like, there's there's elements of like jazz fusion to it. Yeah. Uh, and then you have like the big kind of atmospheric sound that you get from the classic Pink Floyd albums, mm -hmm. and uh, the vocals are really good. But they got their name from the lead song off Radiohead's OK Computer, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yep. So they're, they're big Radiohead fans too. So what's really odd about that is, I think so, but not really. Like they don't talk about it that much. Uh, um, Bjorn Reese is one of his major influences is Kiss, surprisingly. But you don't hear that come across at right. all in, in his, his music. Um, so, yeah, they clearly, uh, Radio Bags, um, Radio Bag, <laughs> Radio Heads Airbags, uh, or, or at least OK Computer, had an influence on them. But, um, I, and I can hear elements of it. I mean, because Radio, that one album of theirs, 
it's progressive-y and, you know, it's got some elements to it, some sound effects and that sort of thing that, that you wouldn't find in a, in a normal song, but a quote-unquote normal song. Do you remember after OK Computer when everybody was like, all right, Radiohead's going to be our generation to Pink Floyd? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, that, that didn't pan out. Didn't pan out. And I don't know, when did Pablo Honey come out? That was after, right? Uh-uh, Pablo Honey was the first album. The first 93, one, okay. 92, 93. To me, Creep kind of, like, it almost could have pigeonholed him, and I think that's why they may have tried to pivot. I don't know. Which, I mean, I don't, I, maybe Tom York, I don't think he puts enough thought into where he wants his career to go. You know, I think it just kind of naturally happens. He's like, well, I think I'm going to play today. In the same right. way that um, uh, John Maynard and Keynes for about, is that uh, the same? Maynard uh, James Keenan, I think. For God, Tool. I, I screwed that one up. Yeah, yeah, from Tool. That's kind of the way they do it. It's like, ah, we might release an album this decade. Who knows? <laughs> you know? Well, people ask me, are you a Radiohead fan? And I go, yes, but there's caveats. I like the bands. I like OK Computer, and I like In Rainbows. Mm-hmm. And then everything else, I just cherry pick a song or two. From, yeah. um, I'm with you on that, for sure. I'm OK Computer's definitely my favorite. Um, there's the others I can't I can't hardly deal with. The, the bands, <clears throat> I've been... I really wish they would have stayed with that for at least another album or so because, man, it was so good. There's not a stinker on it. Um, it's one of those ones, you know, you put on and you just let it you let it ride. You don't worry about getting up and, and, and changing anything. Yeah. And then um, Rainbows, that was a unique one in the sense of the way they released it. Yeah. I mean, so it's they, just a download so free-for-all. It, you, pay, you pay what you want. Mm-hmm. Um, the average, do you know what the average cost was? Was it like, I, I remember reading an article with it in there. They wind up making a lot of money off of it. But the average cost for the album, uh, when you average out everybody who downloaded mm-hmm. it for free versus paid whatever they want, was around, I mean, I'll have to look this up to see what it is now, but it was around 6 or $7 when I checked. So it's, it's really interesting how that works out. Like, so that's that's how much people would value that one given album, you know, if given the opportunity, whereas no album is right now even that cheap. It's usually like, even the cheaper ones, when I find one on Amazon that feels cheap to me, mm-hmm. it's still eight ninety nine. you right. know? Uh, so I, I do remember it came in like under that uh, that threshold of which I would have considered cheap but, for any. Other. But you got to think that's probably what the band actually makes off of it because you, you're, true, you're paying yeah. to have a distributor, you know, ship it, package it, everything. There's no there's no overhead to that. That's an interesting thought. So they they actually may have made. I'm sure they still had to give people cuts for various reasons, right. but the distribution was out of the question. It's right. Just like we're, so we're you've cut out you've cut out the middleman. That's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. Um, yeah, so, uh, Kyle, last week I went with a couple of friends that I went to graduate school with, uh, over to Birmingham to see, uh, Metallica on their Hardwire tour. And you were telling me you had seen them the year before at the stadium tour, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. In, in Atlanta. Atlanta so, in July. I think it was f- close to 4th of July weekend. Was that your first Metallica show? Yes. What'd you think? Um, I'm trying to think of those words you told me I can't say on this podcast, or the, <laughs> otherwise I have to put a dollar in the jar. But it was, um, it, it was, it was great. I mean, it was fantastic, amazing, incredible. I don't know what the word is. I mean, it. You got to understand, like I have loved Metallica since um, Injustice for All. I was a little bit too young uh, to really pick up Completely on them. Completely understand. Yeah, before it, yeah. those albums. But as soon as Injustice for All, and more uh, specifically, when I saw the video for One. And I mean nightmares. It's unreal, man. And then I saw um, 
one of my buddies had a just a 2.0 stereo system, you know, just two-channel stereo system. And he had it such a way where you could lay on his bed, and he had it. Uh, he had the 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 speakers kind of angled in, kind mm-hmm. of form that triangle. And we listened to one, and you could hear, hear that double bass, brr, brr, you know. And it was so cool to hear it go left, right, left, right, left, right, uh, between your ears. And so um, that that was great. And that's when I started looking into their back catalogs. And love ride the lightning, uh, love master of puppets. Did not love kill them all. Anesthesia pulling teeth was was something different. I mean, that was that was a unique to have a bass solo, you know. Right. Um, <clears throat> which I mean, unique to me, but like, of course we had, you know, Yako Pistorius before that and, you know, who actually legitimately did bass solos. But anyway, um, so yeah, that's leading up to that. And then the black album, like that was, that was, that came out at the height of what I would consider my musical, uh, you know, experience or whatever. And, um, and to have all of that history, go into this moment of like, I don't know if I'm ever going to see these guys play. I mean, it wasn't like Guns N' Roses was to me, like, well, they're never getting back together. Mm-hmm. And it's just, and all of a sudden, they did get back together, which was which was amazing. Um, but, but to have that experience and to have that whole back catalog played for me, and on the floor of the, was it SunTrust Stadium? Mm-hmm. SunTrust Park. Uh, SunTrust Park. Um, I mean, 50,000 fans there, it was, I mean, it was unreal. It was out of this world. Yeah, yeah. I... It's fastly moving up my list of the best concerts I've ever been to. Yeah, um, I saw them in 1996 at Lollapalooza. That was the last. So I don't oh, okay. really count that well, as like because you know it's a, it's out it was out it's an outdoor festival. We had literally been there for like ten hours. Yeah, um, you know, wading through good bands, bad bands in New Orleans in the heat. By the time they came out, yeah, you know, it was a toast. Yeah, I mean the thing is, if you've ever seen a band at a festival, you're not seeing their best work, right? Because they're playing on somebody else's equipment, on some borrowed time. I mean, there's there's no sound checks that occur routinely the way that it would at a major production. So they're gonna have half their you know their setup or whatever. Um, I love going to festivals because you can kind of check off when I when I tell somebody I've been to and I don't know how many, but I've been to three or four hundred concerts. What I really mean is artists and, and all that, because I might knock out 30 in a single festival that I've never seen right. before. I still count those in terms of my, my the same way you would count how many fish you catch or right. whatever. But at the same time, I um, I agree with you. If you've seen somebody at a festival, you haven't really seen somebody. Uh, so for this to be the Birmingham show to be your first full-on you know Metallica experience. They had Jim Brewer, the comedian, <clears throat> opening in... I'm not a fan of I'm not a fan of Jim Brewer to begin with, but um, I'm just I don't know. Um, well, hopefully, you don't want him on the podcast, then. right? You just you just ruin that chance. But I'm I'm really <laughs> not a fan of a, of a comedian, you know, opening. But what they did so at seven thirty is the time listed on the ticket, and you know they they play in the round in the middle of the arena, and he comes out at like seven thirty, and he does you know a little bit of stand up stuff, and then he's like. You know, you he basically tells you it's going to be over an hour before Metallica comes out. So he gets everybody pumped up, and he he tries to find the youngest person in the audience. So I think there was a six-year-old there, and then there was a 72-year-old person that was there. That's cool. And so then he does this little spiel, which I thought was funny, about, like, who, who, who is sitting in what seats? So he's like, you people on the floor, y'all are the animals. You know, you're the animals. Because they started lining up at 8 a.m. 
to, to get a chance to get on the rail. Yeah. Um, and he's like, you guys are all crazy. And he's like, you know. The, <laughs> I've done that before. <laughs> the, our seats were on the the first section up from the floor. And he goes, all you people right here in the middle section. Yeah. You're all over 40. <laughs> and you don't think you, you, can't, you can't hold up on the floor, you know. Mm-hmm. And then he was like, all you people up on top. Y'all didn't realize Metallica tickets sold real quick, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> and so, uh, and so then he goes off the stage for a bit, and they have a DJ there playing like metal music, and he's taking requests from the crowd. So then later on, Jim Brewer comes back out, and he, I think he, he may have done like a trivia segment or something, and then he disappears, and the DJ keeps playing, and then they show him he's backstage, and so you know Metallica. On any documentary and you see them, they always have what's called the tuning room mm-hmm. where yeah. they warm up. And so you can't see them, but you can hear them. So he puts the microphone up and you can hear them. And he's like, hey, guys, like I've seen the set list for tonight. They haven't played here in 27 years. You're going to get one of the best set lists of this entire tour. And so I'm thinking he probably said that in Little Rock. He right, probably yeah. said that in Tulsa. You know, Turns out he doesn't say that. And we, we really did. But... Uh, it was mind blowing. Um, it, it really was. Um, I found myself. I sang. I think the show's two and a half hours. Sang for two and a half hours every word to every song. Um, the the stage was really cool. They've done a really good job of. It's more going on than you think, but initially it's kind of like a minimalist approach. Mm-hmm. But then, like they had drones come out that looked like moths lighted up during Moth into a Flame, and they circle. Oh, that's they cool. Circle, they didn't do that for mine. You know, they circle the stage, and um, it's really, really cool. And they have these like thing, these they're tiny screens that look like TVs, and they go up and down, up and down, and you know, and they play some videos over all of that. And uh, it was just a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, the rotating songs. We got Sanitarium, got Creeping Death, uh, Dream No More off the new album, and we got uh, Battery. Which uh, I'm not a huge fan of that. Uh, I know like the the hardcore thrash people just you know bow at the altar of that song, but all in all, it was a lot of fun. It was a uh, not a cheap ticket, but it was uh, completely money well spent. Yeah, um, I was just I needed to look up the set list for mine because you're you're making me question what I even listened to that day. Um, so it was uh, let's see. So of course they open with "Ecstasy of Gold," right? And that is just a fantastic right. opener, you know. Um, but we got a good bit of um, a good bit of the new album, which I was I was kind of pleasantly surprised because sometimes when you come out with a new album, it's just like, well, we're gonna play one or two songs off of it, but it didn't sell well. And so they play a lot. Yeah, it was a ton, which and that I think is a great album too. Yeah. Um, Whom the bell tolls, Master of Puppets, Fade to Black. Um, one was probably my highlight, and they they had a great video before one of soldiers marching and that sort of thing, and they closed with uh, with battery, nothing else matters, and Inner Sandman for the for the encore. So you guys got fade to black. That's awesome. That's the one song that we didn't get that that I really really wanted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean when I was when I left, I couldn't think of a song that I that I wanted that I didn't get, um, and so. Uh, I was very, very happy leaving that concert. I probably could have done without Seek and Destroy. Not my favorite song. Um, Unforgiven was great. <clears throat> Wherever I May Roam, Sad But True. I mean, just a lot of hard hitters. I loved it. They're they're becoming like the 
Jimmy Buffett or Grateful Dead of our generation as far as like a... Because it's interesting you say Jimmy Buffett, but I know exactly what you mean. They're not a, parrot heads. They're like... No, you know. It's an event. Mm-hmm. And it's a big communal thing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think one of the big misconceptions people have about heavy metal concerts are that they're really violent. Mm-hmm. Um, I probably saw more problems out of people at a, any country concert than I saw at Metallica. Oh yeah, I don't. I mean, there. I don't think there were zero problems. Right. Um, when you mentioned uh, uh, the guys, the opener, the comedian's opener. So I saw one comedian open for Share. That's the only time I've ever seen a comedian open. And but I agree with you. I don't like. I don't like the thought of it. You know, it just doesn't seem right to me. And I, you made you made me recall. We also had a DJ. There was a DJ that basically played. When you say it was a community event, this is what made me think of it. Um, our communal event, rather. It started at like two in the afternoon, and that DJ played for like three or four hours, mm-hmm. and uh, he played in between. So Volbeat, uh, and then he came back on. The DJ came back on, and then it was um, Avenged Sevenfold. And then DJ came back on, and it was Metallica. So, I mean, it was a full day uh, concert, which was it was nice. It was wonderful. So, if you get a chance to go see them while they're out on tour, I highly, highly recommend it. You will not be disappointed, even if you're a casual fan. Mm-hmm. Um, For sure. And I think you could even take somebody that wasn't really a fan, and they would go to it. Just the spectacle of it would impress them. Yeah, I agree. All right, so our, our topic this week is, uh, is, is going to be Pink Floyd-based. And so, when I think of Pink Floyd and... Uh, people I know that are that are Floyd freaks. Kyle is at the top of that list. Mm-hmm. Um, his um, memory recall on all things Pink Floyd is is quite impressive, and his knowledge base is expansive. So, uh, when you were on here for Dark Side of the Moon, we obviously talked about how we got it. Both of us got into Pink Floyd and our love of Pink Floyd. So there's no need to rehash that, and um, um, you know we both talked about our love for dark side of the moon which i think is their is it's my favorite album i know a lot of i think animals is probably yours it's, right? yeah animals is definitely my i mean dark side's wonderful who's going to argue with dark side of the moon you know right um but there's just something special about animals it's a it's a great it's a great album and you'll 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 hear things about that album on this podcast so my task for kyle was for, well, for both of us was to come up with our five favorite Pink Floyd songs, and this is almost—it's almost impossible mm-hmm. to do uh, because it kind of depends on what kind of mood I'm in for Pink Floyd. Yeah, when you first when you first uh, called me about it, I thought you said top thirty-five. I was like, okay, that's easy. Like, yeah. I got this, you know. <laughs> but yeah. you said top five. I was like, okay, well, I've got I've got to do some serious thinking here. So we've both narrowed a list down to five. And if you ask me this when we stop recording this, my list may have changed, um, as with a lot of things. But uh, so what we're going to do is we're just going to talk about these songs, and we we are going to take some liberties with it to some extent. Um, There's some songs that we're going to pinpoint specific performances of, not mm-hmm. necessarily the studio version. So um, don't think we're cheating or, or changing the rules. But I guess we can cheat and change the rules if we're playing the game and we came up with the game that's right <laughs> so whoever whoever has control of the record button gets to make the rule right so uh kyle since you're the get since you're our guest why don't you uh throw one out um that's one of your five favorites and we'll 
we'll discuss and we'll just go sure. back and forth like that. Yeah, so let me tell you just a touch of my method because I had a lot of trouble coming up with just five, you know, and I'll probably throw in some honorable mentions. Um, but I wanted to pick something that just moved me emotionally. And you could argue that a lot of songs move you emotionally, but these are among the top that really move me emotionally. So if you don't hear me say Time, I love the song Time. It's a great song. I love Brain Damage. I love Eclipse. Um, I love Wish You Were Here. All of those are moving to me, but these are the ones that were just kind of over the top. So that was kind of my um, my criteria that I had set up for this. And it was really the one and only criteria uh, that I had set up. So my first song that I'm going to talk about, and these are not in any particular order. I did save one for the last because I think it would be fun to talk about that one last. But, um, but I don't love this song number one versus number two versus number three. So my first song that I'm going to talk about is Pigs, Three Different Ones from the Animals album. So like I've already mentioned, Animals is probably my favorite Pink Floyd album. Um, I consider myself a deep Pink Floyd fan. So um, I, I think a lot of, maybe this is my problem with Dark Side of the Moon, with not calling it my favorite. But I think a, even the most casual fan would say, oh yeah, I love Dark Side of the Moon. And they would just immediately latch onto that. So maybe I'm just kind of bristling against that because I don't want to be that fan, you know? Um, nothing wrong with it, though, obviously, because it, it's, it's again, how do you argue with Dark Side of the Moon? But Animals is, is one of my all-time favorite, anim uh, favorite animals. Animals is one of my all-time favorite albums, and, uh, and especially this song, Pigs, Three Different Ones. So this was one, uh, it was written by Roger Waters, so 1977 Animals um, um, album. Uh, he wrote the lyrics about people that were at the top of the social ladder, and so he specifically talks about three and he's been really elusive. He won't tell us who those three people are, but at the beginning of each verse, he, he kind of gives you a hint as, or not a hint, but I mean, at the beginning of each verse, you can hear him talking about who it is. And so the first one, he says, big man, pig man, ha ha, charade you are. Um, and so that, that one is, we think it's just in general about a businessman, you know, being a pig and that sort of thing. Um, he goes through. Uh, he goes through these, and he said, um, "What do you hope to find down in the pig mine?" And so, some people have suggested that that is about a guy named Arthur Scargill, who uh, was with the National Union of Mine Workers, and apparently he became the president of it after Animals. But he, um, some people think it was about him because Roger Waters would typically pick on kind of big name pol either politicians or people who had some sort of social influence because he's Roger's a pretty political guy. But um, anyway, so that's that's the first pig, uh, since he specifies there's three different ones. The first one, we're not really sure who it is. Some people have suggested that it's Arthur Scargill. Uh, we don't really know. And he, Roger has not. He's been elusive in interviews. He will not answer the question as to who it is. The second one, a lot of people think is about Margaret Thatcher. So Margaret Thatcher has been on the, the world stage, and especially the, the Britain-UK stage for a while, and uh, in 77, she hadn't quite become prime minister. I think she did that in like 80, so, it was shortly thereafter. Uh, but she still was a big name presence in the same way that, um, you know, people would be over here that, uh, that, that you could name, right? So John McCain, he's never been president, but everybody kind of knows who he is, that sort of thing, right? And so we know the second verse is about a, a woman just simply because he says you effed up old hag. Hag is not typically something you'd say about a man, it's a woman, right? So that leads us some... Um, some some hints as to that. But the last one, we're pretty darn clear, is about a person named Mary Whitehouse. Because in the very first line, he says, Hey, you, White House. A lot of people thought he was talking about the White House, the United States. 
Well, if you look at the liner notes um, and you know, where the lyrics are printed, it's not two separate words that are proper nouns. It is one word. And even in, and if you're still not convinced by that as you go further down the lyrics, the last three lines are, Mary, you're nearly a treat. Mary, you're nearly a treat, but you're really a cry. So it's Mary Whitehouse. So that one's a really clear one uh, as to who that one is. Now, who she, is she? Well, I was going to say she's another one of those people. Um, I forgot. I actually forgot who she was. I looked it up earlier because I, I just wasn't sure, but now I've forgotten. Uh, I've forgotten who it was. But anyway, she, another political person, or at least another person that had tremendous social influence. Um, man, I hate that I forget that right now. But anyway, um, that's obviously a lot of details about the song. Uh, what I love about it, it, it it's got a great, well, I mean, to me, it really represents what the Animals album sounds like. It's atmospheric. It's got a lot of um, some, some kind of droning, melodic piano parts. It's got um, fantastic guitar work and the lyrics i just love how rogers he can say things like your hot stuff with a hat pin and good fun with a handgun like that sounds so sophomoric but in that song it just works um so i just i don't know it's hard to um i feel like i'm trying to explain how cool a painting can be you know like it is so hard to describe what is fantastic about this song so you just really need to listen to it yourself if you're a pink floyd fan and you've not listened to this song uh, which I would, I would, I'd be willing to bet that there's, you know, 20, 30% of the people out there that call themselves a Pink Floyd song who haven't even ventured into animals. I know I didn't until probably 15 years after I discovered Pink Floyd because of the timing in which I discovered it. If you're going to check them out, the first thing to check out, type in your browser, Pigs, three different ones, Roger Waters, Mexico City. So on October the 1st, 2016, in Zocalo Square in Mexico City, in front of 300,000 people, we got the first glimpse of what his um, Pigs Three Different Ones set was going to look like in his Us and Them tour that was to follow. Um, and But more uh, proximal to that, we saw what his Coachella performance was going to be. And it was very, uh, very heavy on making fun of some Trump, right? And so it just so happens because this is about... Again, people at the top of the social ladder abusing their powers and that sort of thing. Some could argue that that is a, you know, I mean, Trump Trump really represents that. And so he really laid it to Trump in this in this, um, in this this song. And if you went to the Us and Them tour, like I did, um, all four shows that I went to, people were walking out, not in troves like that they, you know, like I, I saw some people reporting on the news or, you know, or saying that they did. None of my shows did, and I don't think there's any evidence that troves of people walked out. But you had some you know, pissed off people that had rope belts on in, in, you know, American flag shirts that they decided they wanted to get up and walk out, which was fine. Um, when he, uh, when he did Leaving Beirut, I believe on his, um, what was that, Dark Side of the Moon tour, he says uh, something about your Texas education must have really effed you up or something. So it's a, you know, anti-George Bush, at least not song, but a piece of the song. We, we had people standing up and actively turning around and not facing him during that song. So it was that same sort of feel. I mean, there's people standing up right in front of me. They had two fingers in the air, and you know, or just not right. not even facing, not even facing him. But I mean, by it was like one percent of the crowd, you know. So anyway, if you check out that version, that is an that is a wonderful version. The the visuals are wonderful. The audio sounds great. I've actually heard a bootleg of that. They definitely doctored up the audio some. I mean, I heard some missed notes on the bootleg, but I mean, but if you listen to, if you're not a purist and you're okay with it just sounding and looking great because they edited the hell out of it, that is a fantastic version of that song. I mean, again, it's very, very similar. There's a few changes, but it's very, very similar to what you would ultimately see on the Us and Them tour. So 
there's a there's a pig that floats. This is where the pig comes out, and it floats around the venue. And and uh, in this case, the the audience kind of ripped it apart. And the shows that I went because he just let it kind of float above the audience, and they were kind of pushing it the way you would a stage diver, you know. Um, but the shows that I went to, it was a an, not animatronic. It was a con- radio controlled, like a mm-hmm. flying one or whatever. And that was the same thing I had seen at other shows as well. So there's various like slanderous things written on the pig about the president and about just capitalism and stuff like that. Um, this is the first use of the talk box by David Gilmour in a song. And so if you if you think where we were in 1977, like Frampton comes alive, right? I don't know if that was 77, but around that time, 78, something like that. You had people using the talk box. To me, like, I, you know, I hate this. I hate a mockery of music. I hate anything that makes that you're you're adding something that's kind of childish to music. So I hated Fish for a long time, which they're fantastic live. Fantastic to my word today, I suppose. Um, but he uses a talk box, and God bless him, he uses it just like David Gilmour would use it. He's not trying to say words and make you hear, you know, or anything like that. He's just making it, it's a true guitar effect. The same way his phase 90 is an effect or his big muff is an effect. So I uh, had a lot of respect for that. And then we also hear, I think, which may be the debut of the cowbell for Pink Floyd. So Nick Mason's like really rocking is a prominent cowbell in this song. So anyway, um, you can actually hear this song. This is a significant moment in Pink Floyd history. It's not why I picked the song at all. But if you'll recall, if you're, again, a sort of a deepish Pink Floyd fan, you'll know that Roger Waters in Montreal, July 6, 77, he, uh, a, a fan in the front row, they were playing this song, and a fan was letting off fireworks. And, and that's just something you wouldn't even see now, especially in Apparently a Apparently in the 70s, that was a huge thing to do at concerts. Which is, like, that's like got to be aggravating. Bombs. yeah. Yeah. So anyway, he apparently gets aggravated at this person, and you can hear this on uh, pieces of it on the bootleg, and then he spits in his face. That night was the inspiration for the wall that was to come, which is, you know, it's unreal to think that that that, that moment had this much influence. But So that's a decent recording of it. Um, one other little fun fact before I, I toss the ball back to you uh, for your number one. On the Animals Tour... You can hear Roger on the various bootlegs that you'll get. You can hear him shouting a number out. Nick Mason later uh, said in an interview that he, he was shouting those numbers out so that he would he could keep up with the bootlegs. So if he said 17, he knew what show that that corresponded to. So he would actually shout that out, and it was during this song that he would shout that out. So if, you, if you're into bootlegs, we were just talking about this earlier. I want to get more into bootlegs, and I know there's a couple of seminal shows that that you can uh, that that I can reference that you can go to, uh, but I'm not by and large I don't have a great a huge bootleg collection, but uh, but that's just an interesting little fun fact. If you're into bootlegs and you hear that, you know that's that's what that means. That was Roger's personal way of keeping up with bootlegs, a uh, boot tracks. I haven't seen boot tracks. Sorry about that. Anyway, so that's my number one man. What do you think about this song? I have it. I have it in in my list as well. I think it may be the one of the most perfectly recorded songs of theirs. Mm-hmm. The fidelity on it, which is saying a lot because their stuff always sounds nice and crisp. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree with you about the cowbell. It's, it, it's, it, it plays a big role in the song. And it fits. It's yeah. not awkward. You right. know? It's not awkward at all. Um, I too saw him on the Us and Them tour and the pig flew very, very, very close to us, uh, just mm-hmm. above us. And you could hear the little motor going you know and it was remote controlled and one of the things though that bugs me about roger waters is 
You know, everybody's entitled to their opinion, and, and, and he certainly has his, and he's very, you know, he's very open about that. And so, like, people that go and get upset because of what he says, uh, you're either not a fan or, or, or you're just, you're not, I mean, that's, you're not paying that's, attention. <laughs> that's what you're going to get, yeah. you know? But it always is interesting to me. He rails on capitalism and greed. I think I paid $300 to go to that show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think they were selling T-shirts for $40 and $50. Yeah. Um, and there's all these different packages. Yeah. You know? Uh, about every four years, Pink Floyd remasters their catalog and has a big push. Um, and I saw an interview with him one time, and the interviewer, to his credit, was like, basically kind of said the same thing I did, except he said, you know, you drove up to this interview in what has to be about a $100,000 car. That shirt you're wearing is probably a hundred dollars. And water's like, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, he that that yeah. That, I know what you're saying. That frustrates me on, on a lot of levels. It also frustrates me when you have somebody like him, um, that is amassed a massive fortune, and then all of a sudden, you know, not to be political, I'm just pointing this out. They'll say things like, "We should pay more taxes." You've made your money. You've mm-hmm. got two hundred million sitting in the bank. Yeah, you know. But anyway, to get back to the song, um, it's my favorite song on animals. Yeah, um, it's my go-to on animals. If I'm just going to listen to one song, um, I did not know that all the information you just told me about the the three different people. Um, it's fascinating that people haven't been able to figure some of it out, and that he won't tell anybody. I guess it's kind of like a what was the song? You're so vain. It was forever yeah, before. Yeah, Carly Carly Simon. Yeah, before yeah. we found out who that was, and she never would answer it. Um, Wait, it's a dog, by the way. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I thought it was the highlight. To me, it was the highlight of that show. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. Easily. Yeah. The, the second, second half. It, the, was the, the, the second half. Or the second, second half was second set or whatever you want to call it was just phenomenal, except for the screen that comes down over the crowd. So it comes down over the crowd. And we were sitting about halfway up in the first section from the floor. Mm-hmm. So to see Waters, I have to turn and look to the left. Mm-hmm. Well, normally if you have like a screen, it's showing what's going on on the stage. We know this screen was completely different. It was part of the show. I find myself like I watched more of the screen than I did yeah, yeah. the band, which I thought was a little distracting. But I'll, I'll give, him, give him credit. It was, it was very... It was very well done. Yeah. And it was thinking outside of the box. Yeah. So on that, are you talking about the screen that's that literally the, the uh, Battersea power station yeah. screen? Okay. Yeah. So uh, when you go just to, if you didn't go to the show, I went to this four times. And three of the four times I was on the floor. And I knew that he was going to do something. If you were a floor person, you weren't going to be able to see what you're talking about, which is at the if you went to go you know get a drink or, or go to the bathroom after the end of the first set, you literally had 15 minutes. And if you were out there, like, you know, half the whole place was because they never seemed to fully staff anything at any concert represent. If you can sell a beer for $13, right. there should be people everywhere trying to get right. a beer. Right, <laughs> yeah. right. Um, but anyway, so uh, you start, you hear this huge horn, this horn go off. Like, it sounds like an emergency kind of horn. And it's during that time that they're lowering all these screens. Mm-hmm. There's probably, what, eight or, yeah. well, six to eight on each side. Yeah that form what is the animal's cover. There's a pig flying above the Battersea Power Station um, that's right off the Thames River and uh, in London. And so um, 
it, uh, it, or the Thames, I don't know, Thames. The Thames. Anyway, I thought, you know, it spelled T-H-A-M-E-S, though. Anyway, so, um, so it, it lowers down, and you, and then you can see what's being projected on that screen. So if you're on the floor, you've got great seats for the first half of the show, but you can't really see what's going on above you. So when I went to go see him in New Orleans for the fourth time, I actually went by myself, uh, because, I mean... Nobody wanted to go four times in a row with me. <laughs> and so uh, I purposefully got a lower bowl of seat. That way I could see the show from that other perspective. But anyway, yeah, I agree with you, though. Probably the, the top song for that whole tour. Yeah. So let's see. Uh, I'll do one since I had that one as well, uh, which we're going to have significant overlap. So yeah, I think with three songs. Um, I'm going to talk about a, a song that was originally recorded on Momentary Lights of Reason called On the Turning Away. Now, David Gilmore admittedly, I don't know if admittedly, but it's well known, he's not the best lyricist. No. But he can write great music. Roger Waters, the good lyricist, eh, the music maybe not so much at times, which... Sure. They're they're the greatest example if they got to have one another. Yes, absolutely. But I still think Pink Floyd did better post Roger Waters than Roger Waters did post Pink Floyd. Right, right, yeah. Um, but on the turning away, like I said, is on the Momentary Lapse of Reason album, which came out I think in like '87. It's the first post Waters album. Um, I think it's some of Gilmore's best lyrical work, and the lyrics could almost. If you didn't know Roger Waters didn't write them, mm-hmm. you, you might think, you know, that, that he wrote it. But yeah, the, the, on that same album, sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but on that same album, uh, Gilmore uh, said Sorrow was probably, he said that his, that's his best lyrical work. Really? Uh, that he did, yeah. And he even stole part of that from, what was it, a John Steinbeck? Um, I'll have to look it up when we're, while you're talking, but it was uh, the uh, Smoke Goes for the Leaden Sky, whatever that part is. Uh, he he kind of ripped that off in the same sense that uh, Blues Traveler ripped off Edgar Allan Poe with Once Upon a Midnight Dreary. Anyway. Did not know that. Yeah. See, Kyle, you're just a treasure trove. Of <laughs> well, but I, I can't remember the answer, though. <laughs> um, but the version that I like is on the live album from that tour, Delicate Sound of Thunder. Mm-hmm. I just think the intro of it is it's much more ethereal and atmospheric. And uh, the way that Gilmore delivers those lines a cappella mm-hmm. at the beginning and then it heats up at the end with a, a blistering guitar solo. And if you don't know what the song is about, it it, it was it's basically about um, uh, those in society that are kind of at the top of the food chain and just kind of turn away from the poor and the needy. Mm-hmm. And uh, obviously, the song is called "On the Turning Away." It got played obviously a lot on that delicate sound of, I mean, on the Momentary Lapse of Reason tour, and it got played I think sporadically on. Um, the uh, Division Bell tour, not a lot, but I, I've seen it in some set list, and mm-hmm. I, I don't recall him really doing it except for like one show on his solo tour. Is that right? I, I think so I read his that. solo tour. So he did. Um, I want to say he did it at the Gdansk, uh, live at Gdansk. I think it was for that because that you know that whole thing was around solidarity and the in the workers union strike right. and the, the I guess the riot or whatever that right. occurred. And so because of that, they brought that one out as a special uh, special song. I think I'm correct in that one. So if you haven't heard it, and a lot of people probably haven't, it's, like I said, it's on Momentary Lapse of Reason, but go listen to the Delicate Sound of Thunder version. That, uh, to me, is is a better interpretation of it. I haven't heard a better version of that one. Um, even in, even when they did, because it, it was released as bonus content, I believe, in the Gdansk, um, 
on the Gdansk album. Uh, but it's still, they actually, I think they messed up the lyric on that one. It, and they kind of laughed when they were doing it. But anyway, that was kind of a, a little funny thing that they, they still wanted to release it because it was a great version of it or whatever. But. Tremendous song. Yeah. All right, Cal, what's what's another one of your favorite Pink Floyd songs? So, um, you know, I had trouble not just saying all five of these were animals because then I could just go with my theme of, you know, just talking about basically the animals album, right? right? Uh, but I've got to do one more from animals and then I force myself to jump off of it. So, Dogs. Uh, it's the second song from the Animals album. Uh, this one was written by David Gilmore and Roger Waters, whereas the last uh, th- picks three different ones was, in terms of writing credit, was just Waters. Uh, but I, clearly, I mean, Roger was not playing guitar on, on that album in the sense of lead stuff, right? Uh, on that song, rather. But for Dogs, okay, this is one that you can actually find uh, from 1974 on uh, in, in, in their Dark Side of the Moon tour, when, especially when they got to Britain. Uh, the, the piece of that tour for Dark Side of the Moon. So they toured, obviously Dark Side of the Moon was a fen- like phenomenal hit, right? And so they had multiple legs of the Dark Side of the Moon tour. The first one was like 72, 73, so you actually got to hear part of Dark Side of the Moon prior to Dark Side of the Moon coming out in 73. Uh, then they had a France, in 74 they had a France leg and then a Britain leg. And in the British le- Britain leg uh, is when they, they debuted this song called You Gotta Be Crazy. And if you know the, the if you know that song, the first lyric is, you got to be crazy, got to have a real need. And it goes through that, right? I didn't mean to sing that just then. That's <laughs> fine. Um, um, it was kind of sing-songy. But anyway, so um, this is about cutthroat capitalism. So it kind of stays within that same uh, theme. And I guess I should mention at this point, animals is sort of a, a George Orwellian concept that they piece together. And, and it kind of, um, I can't imagine writing an, an awesome song and then saving it for some this like later album that may never happen, you know? Because right. at this point, if they wrote it in 74, which to be quite honest, they were still trying to figure it out in 74. Um, but, uh, but ultimately, like they still had Wish You Were Here. So like they skipped that album over and then saved it, which is seventy five. Yeah, I've never understood how you do that. I don't, I don't either, man. I mean, but I mean, if you're a prolific writer and you just know that, I mean, you got to be crazy, right. which became Dogs, did not fit the theme of Wish You Were Here. Right. It just wouldn't have meshed. You can tell where they're from the same band and from the same mold, but they weren't the same concept and they weren't musically the same. Um, and really, with Wish You Were Here, they were trying to get crazy experimental, and it was going to be an album called Household Objects, where they were going to make music with rubber bands right. and crap. That and there's actually some recordings of that. Yeah, well, if you got the Immersion box set of Wish You Were Here, you got some of those early recordings. Do you have that? Uh, I do not. Uh, I was, <laughs> I kind of stuck my, my feet in the ground, uh, maybe, and I shouldn't have, but I, I just said, I, I can't buy, like, I just don't want to buy all these, like, $150 box sets that are coming out. I'm a huge fan, but... I don't know. I just I'd rather just get a digital download later because I just don't want all this mass of stuff. And now I, I, I guess I kind of regret it a little bit. But when though to be fair, when those came out, I was a different I was in a different point financially, and I was kind of had a different viewpoint of where I was spending money. So, but now that I'm actively collecting vinyl and I'm thinking about that sort of stuff more. But when that came out, it was kind of a weird period um, in terms of like vinyl had kind of resurged and. But also CDs were kind of going out the wayside. So I wasn't really sure what I was going to do with my collection. So anyway, long story short, I didn't get it. Maybe I should have. But if you, this may be an an interesting little uh, journey for for the listeners to take. If you want to listen to how this song evolved, we don't always get to do, we don't always get to hear this, right? But in this one song in particular, and also Sheep, if you want to look at, uh, look at that one as well, which we won't, I won't talk about today in terms of my top five, but it's Sheep is the 
the fourth song on Animals. It's five songs total. Um, and it was called Raving and Drooling. It also premiered, uh, it was written about 1974, and so you can hear those two songs being played on Dark Side of the Moon tour. Um, and so anyway, if you want to have an interesting little journey to see how this song kind of developed, uh, I would recommend go a great, first of all, a great live version is 1974 at Wembley. It's called Empire Pool at the time, but it's Wembley Stadium. Uh, so look that one up. That's an easy one to find on YouTube. I think that that is a great live version. They were still trying to figure it out. Like they were still trying to get the, the pieces all together. Uh, but it, for that one, the lyrics and the vocal pace were still not what we got on Animals. So I'm very happy that they kind of tested that one out because it's, um, you just have to hear it. David Gilmour's voice on that one was a little bit too rushed and like, and it wasn't just him, it was the fact that they haven't, they hadn't figured out how to put all the words to the meter of the song, you know. And so they finally figured that out before they released that. I mean, that may, maybe that's why it didn't make uh, Wish um, Wish You Were Here. They just wouldn't, even if they wanted to put it on there, it was not ready and I think they even knew it. Um, but the song really came together musically for the 1974 Wembley show. If you if you go look that one up, and you in fact you hear some fills and some different guitar work and really just different uh, keys key work as well that you don't hear on Animals. I actually prefer some of the little pieces that they did in that 74 Wembley show. So highly recommend that you put that up. But if you want to go back in the time machine, go to the Los Angeles show at Memorial Sports Complex, April 26, 1974. That is like a fundamentally I mean, different song. Some of the words weren't even the same at that point. Um, and then if you go to Wembley, which is about six months later, they had really tightened up the music pieces, and some of the words were still kind of choppy, but they were there. And then if you go to the 1975 Ontario show at Ivor Wynn Stadium, June 28, 1975, you go listen, so listen in that order, because this is chronologically the order in which it happens, and you would think that as you got closer and closer to the animal's album in 77 as you go further in time that the song would progress in a really noticeable way in this case the 74 one i like a lot wembley one i like a lot more you get to ontario in 75 of like it's like they regressed like i to me the orchestration of it all david gilmore uses this weird phasing sound effect it just did not come together well so had, had we ended up on the animals album with what happened in ontario I, this might not have been my top uh, one of my top five. So um, anyway, so that's um, some fun facts about dogs. Uh, to me, probably one of the better live versions uh, after it was released. Uh, you didn't really get a ton of, of play uh, in in uh, across for Pink Floyd in particular, but Roger Waters had it in several several shows. And uh, I actually like the, the live, the commercial release of In the Flesh, which was, I think it was recorded in 2000 or 2001. I was at one of those shows. Yeah, yeah. And uh, this was, so this, it, that was recorded in, uh, not Ontario, I just said that, um, Ohio. And so, but you went to the Las Vegas Rocks, show, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's one of the better recorded versions of this song um, that, that, uh, that, that's made it out there that I've heard. You know they they played that on on that at that show that I went to and they had uh, Snowy White from Thin Lizzy and uh, Doyle Bramhall the second playing mm -hmm. guitar on it and they really shined yeah uh, on that and <clears throat> they played it also when I saw on the Us and Them tour and when it gets to the long breakdown the band all gets out gets on stage and plays cards yeah yeah <laughs> which I I I thought that was just I thought that was cool yeah because yeah. it's a long song it's like seventeen minutes. 
Uh, that one is, yeah, it's about 17 or 18, something like that. So you have a long breakdown there in the middle where it's not a lot going on. And so, uh, and then I think when I saw them listening to them tour, didn't they put masks on? Yeah. Like uh, dog masks? Uh, pigs. Pigs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like, instead of the dogs playing poker, it's, yeah. you know, pigs playing poker. Yeah. Um, I think it's some of uh, Gilmore's greatest guitar soloing. Just that that kind of yeah and, yeah, and I love the the I love the way that Dole Bramhall the second and Snowy White do the kind of the back and forth uh, on the callbacks on the the um, in the Flesh tour, uh, and I mean they still do that in this one, but I, I particularly love the way that they did it. Um, and while we're on that album, the comfortably numb, the final solo, it's hard to beat. Um, it's hard to beat the Pulse version. We'll we'll probably talk about that later. I know we will, but that's probably my second favorite one, man. That the one where they just do the call and response between uh, Doyle and uh, Snowy, and they're they're kind of walking to the back of the stage there. Um, or uh, anyway, that that's probably uh, my second favorite version of that song. It's not a Gilmore one. Yeah, seventeen minutes, but it's it's a long song, but it's worth it. It has mm-hmm. it has a payoff, um, yep. which uh, um, is always good, especially if you're going to ask somebody to listen to a song that long. There needs to be <laughs> yeah. Yeah. a payoff. All right, so I guess um, I'll bring up uh, another one of my favorites. It's uh, the song Fearless off of um, Metal. Mm-hmm. Metal was released before um, Dark Side of the Moon. And <clears throat> I went back and forth between Echoes and... Um, let's see, I went back and forth between Echoes and... Um, <clears throat> Fearless for this one because I, I had I wanted to have a song off of uh, uh, metal and I was telling you last night I think you can make a case that Fearless and Echoes are maybe the two most important songs they ever recorded because it's out of those two songs that they kind of get the blueprint for where they're going. Mm-hmm. Uh, Echoes obviously is an epic. Uh, I think it's twenty three minutes. Like twenty three minutes, I and I mean if you can hang with it through the that 14 through 19 minute mark, it, it, it really pays off. Um, but I think that's when they finally learned how to put a long song, an epic together, and make it worth it. Whereas like some of their other more experimental stuff, it was quite frankly just a bunch of rubbish mm-hmm. uh, that they did. And then Fearless, you have, I, I think they kind of perfect the atmospheric vocals and you kind of get some of that just... It's rock, but it's still really mellow. Yeah. Uh, and it, you have, you know, Gilmore's voice is perfect on it. Um, and it's, much, you know, it's, it's a short song. It's only like four or five minutes. Mm-hmm. But to me, they took they took those songs and then took elements of it and you got Dark Side of the Moon. Because up until that point, Pink Floyd was very iffy in my opinion, on the material they put out. Mm-hmm. There's a song or two on Piper that are like. Yeah. There, yeah. There's maybe one or two on Saucer that I like. Um, I like, I, I forget, I, and I get confused here. You have like Zabrinsky Point, and you have Moore and Adam Hart Mother. I, I, so I get kind of confused as to what's on what. I, I do like Fat Old Son. Um, that's one of the earlier ones that I like. And then um, the Nile song, mm-hmm. that's probably their heaviest yeah, yeah. Heaviest song that they do. But anyway, so metal, uh, it, it, I really like it. You know, you got uh, One of These Days on it as well. Mm-hmm. Some of the other stuff like Saint-Tropez and Seamus. Um, thanks, Bobby, at work for telling me that it's Seamus and not Seamus. Oh, I've been saying Seamus for 20 <laughs> years, yeah. And uh, anyway, 
those songs I think are kind of to me are kind of throwaways. But oh, I mean, when you get a dog to sing part of your vocals and right. howl it, I mean, that's an experimental little thing. Right. I mean, I don't know why they did that. That's one of those. I mean. They sh- I don't know that to me that's like Guns N' Roses, My World, Use Your Illusion too. Right. Like where, what in the hell is this? <laughs> right, <laughs> you know. But anyway, uh, I love Fearless and I, I love Echoes as much. But I, I went with Fearless. Um, I was playing a version of the Magpie Salute, covering it last night. That was great, man. Note for note. I mean, as you were as you put that in, and within the first minute, I was on Amazon already, like putting that in my cart. Yeah, I just I, that that was great. It's it's phenomenal and. and Rich Robinson does great on the vocals, and he and Mark Ford just tear it up on guitar. But uh, Metal was one of those ones, after I got into Pink Floyd, it was one of those albums I had to go back and get. Uh, because honestly, when I just got into them real hard, I guess one of these days was on Delicate Sound of Thunder. Yes. Uh, yeah, and so I remember like, what album is that from? And... My, my friend Shannon and I... It's on Pulse as yeah, well. Yeah, it's on Pulse as well. My friend Shannon and I were like, went back and saw this on an album called Metal. And so we were broke college kids and one of us had enough money to go buy the CD at the local music store and we put it in and of course one of these days is great and then I think the next song is Fearless or... I don't know anyway, track listing on Fearless, that. like that's awesome. I know that goes his last. Yeah, <laughs> and then of course you get to the, the, you know, the junk that's on there and then you get to Echoes. And you're like, hmm, mm-hmm. now we got something. But anyway, uh, a lot of people listening probably aren't familiar with that album. I would highly suggest at least going to listen to one of these days, Echoes and Fearless. Yes, uh, absolutely. You can't go wrong with those three. One of these days, the only vocal performance for Nick Mason, uh-huh. uh, who coincidentally is the only person to appear on every Pink Floyd album as a member. Yep. As an official member, because Rick Wright was not a member for the final cut. And yeah, I think he was hired hand for even the wall. Yeah. And I think technically he may have been a hired hand for momentary lapse of reason for legal reasons. And then they added him later. I, I think I remember hearing that. Mm-hmm. So uh, anyway, so Nick Mason's on that. And then, um, like we said, Fearless and Echoes. And Echoes, it's 20 something minutes but 23 minutes yep it's worth it's it's worth it and i think it's around the 19 mark where things get really interesting uh with that so anyway i highly suggest metal but uh go and listen to fearless because it's it's one of my favorite pink floyd songs yeah fearless that's an interesting pick to be a top five uh when you said that i was like really that i mean i get it i i totally understand but uh but that was a if you had said i'm gonna pick one of my top five off of metal which one's it gonna be echoes Echoes. that's what i would have said all day long but yeah, Pink Floyd fans, if you're especially if you're you're not the deepest fan ever and you want to see kind of where Pink Floyd was going, that was truly a turning point. Now, one album that kind of gets forgotten about in between those two is Obscured by Clouds. I've actually got that as my iPhone background so that I can because it's a really great background because it's not fully in focus and so you can see the apps very clearly. It's not really but but I love the hint of that. And I've actually got Animals as my true wallpaper that's on my phone as a little fun fact. Um, so. Anyway, um, you can hear, if you go back and listen to Echoes, you can definitely hear where Pink Floyd was going, as you said. And it's really odd that Obscured by Clouds came out 72, 
uh, the year after Metal was because I kind of, in my mind, I expected Pink Floyd to go into Dark Side of the Moon from there because of what we heard and what the foundation that had built. But to me, um, I, I guess I'm kind of getting off track because these are no longer top five songs, but just Obscured by Clouds, I think it's a solid album, but most people can't even name a song off of it. Right. I, I, when I think of it, I think it was it Free Four. Free Four. That's and, the only uh, one I can, that can well, name. Well, it's in the deal. Oh, what's all, what, yeah, what, yeah. What's all the deal? Yeah. 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 Um, that that's it. That has those some more conventional song structures. On it, it does. It absolutely does. Yeah. So to me, if you take what Echoes was, and it was like kind of a the end of experimentalism and kind of really forming the harmony harmonies and that sort of thing, it, then you take the very basic song structures of Obscured and you put those two together, you can see how Dark Side of the Moon is a natural birth of that. They gave us pop songs, and I'm using kind of air quotes there, like Time and Money. Um, which actually those don't follow normal signatures, uh, at least money doesn't, but uh, with a 7-4 time before the solo. But anyway, um, but you can see how that, that Dark Side of the Moon was birthed out of those two efforts, you know, and it's a natural progression for Pink Floyd. All right, Kyle, what's your next one? All right, so I got uh, High Hopes. So this is the last song on the Division Bell, and for a long time, uh, we thought it was going to be the last Pink Floyd song ever from uh, in terms of the end of their discography. And so this was written in 1994. This was uh, written by David Gilmour uh, for music, and David Gilmour and Polly Sampson, who became his... Uh, that they got married um, prior to the Division Bell album being released. Actually, they were dating like towards the end of Momentary Lapse of Reason. And um, anyway, so you started seeing her name pop up uh, on, uh, on some of the, the writing credits. And um, Roger being Roger, full of piss and vinegar, he made comments when, uh, I think it was when Momentary Lapse of Reason came out, he's like, oh, he's got the wife writing the lyrics for him now, you know. So, of course, you got to get that little jab in, right? Um, but anyway, so this uh, this song is one of those that I read an interview with David uh, Gilmore, and he just said, this song came to me quicker than almost any other. He said, "We, I think that him and his wife were at some kind of party, and he got the tune in his head, and he basically like went straight to the Astoria uh, Houseboat Studio, which I need to tell you a story about that. I think I might have seen it overhead when I was landing in London a couple of months wow. ago. Anyway, because uh, I was looking for it. Like I, I know, this is, I'll get in a second. Anyway, um, and so he said that the the either the verse or the chorus or something kind of came to him quick, and so he basically like drove. They were driving home from the party, and he just turned off and went to the Astoria Studio. And he said it just flowed out of him. And so it was one of the quickest songs. And if you listen to that song, now granted, he did a lot of things, I'm sure, to construct it later to really build it. But that's one of their more complex songs in terms of uh, some of the um, the way that they have um, the phrasings that play off of each other. If you hear the solo, there's some strings in the background that do that. And then later he teases back into his, his slide solo with that wow, 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 wow. So there's a lot of little things like that that I think that uh, really make a song uh, special and interesting. And that's one of the reasons why I love prog music or progressive music outside of this. Because you don't, um, there's some common themes, but there's also so much depth to it that you can hear something new each time uh, upon repeated listenings. So anyway, Love High Hopes. Uh, fun fact about this, this is like a Wikipedia fact, so it's not even a deep one, but I think it's neat. Douglas Adams, the guy who wrote uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, uh, actually named this album, and he named the album Division Bell from a lyric that was in High Hopes. The and, ringing of the Division Bell. Right. Has begun. And so uh, as a 
quote-unquote reward for that, uh, David Gilmore donated $25,000 to his favorite charity or his charity of choice, which was like Save the Rhinoceros Fund or something like that. Um, it was based out of Africa, I believe. And so um, anyway, we also hear the line here, and this is the last. I mean, I love Pink Floyd and the fact that they, they I, I feel like they, they, they bury a lot of symbolism in different places, and you can find it if you want to find it. But one of the last lines, what I think they probably believe was the last Pink Floyd album, considering the substantial break they took thereafter, was The Endless River, Forever and Ever. So you hear that line, and it's just like that. To me, that is such a great send off for Pink Floyd, you know. And uh, as as we later find out, you know, I don't twenty five years later or whatever it was, um, we find out that they're recording an album again. Pink Floyd is getting back together. This is after the death of Richard Wright, um, but they had some leftover recordings. Division Bell was originally originally going to be a double album. And uh, part of it was going to be what you actually heard, but the other part was very instrumental and, and had um, uh, essentially what half of uh, about half of what Endless River was. So um, you, uh, if you listen to Endless River, you can hear hints of what Division Bell would have sounded like. So they actually took parts of Rick Wright's, um, um, you know, playing or whatever, and and interspersed it into the to the songs that they were that they put on that album and they subsequently named that album endless river which i thought was another really you know cool in my mind it was a symbol symbolic thing um steve o'rourke uh at the tail end pink one of pink floyd's managers he's he he kind of was petitioning the band to get on one of their albums in some way and i'm sure it's in one of those ways if you've seen uh the metallica documentary um some kind of monster when they have the group therapist you know what i'm talking about mm -hmm. and so the group therapist like he's sitting there and listening with james i mean he's like talking through uh you know metallica's issues like a marriage counselor would right and so um he's in the he's listening to to one of the playbacks in the in the studio and james is sitting there trying to write lyrics and the the therapist is over there writing lyrics to suggest to James like it's like oh please let me be part of this band please let me be part of this moment so Steve O'Rourke was doing that that's the way I imagined it at least he's doing that little thing and so at the tail end you can hear um, the song trails off and it's kind of a hidden track it's not a hidden track in the sense of it you advance forward but if you let it play long enough um, once the song plays out you hear a phone click and it, it says, hello, Charlie. Hey, Charlie. Well, Charlie's uh, Polly Sampson's son, so David's stepson, and it's Steve O'Rourke asking to speak to uh, to David, but um, he's a little kid. Uh, the uh, Charlie's a little kid, and so he doesn't know the proper phone etiquette. You say hello, and that's what he's just listening to him, and they had ended up recording that, so then they hung up the phone on him. So anyway, that's a little fun fact from there. Uh, and I'll leave it with this. So there's three versions of this song that you should check out. And it's really for, um, to me, the best version is on Pulse. The Pulse Live version is the best version of that I've ever heard. I also love the fact that he had some extra little guitar fills to it that didn't make the album. But you could tell he later decided to add those back in because it sounded good. Including um, when it says the division bell has begun. And that little bitty pause, you hear a little distant ding. Of a, of a bell that did not make the album, uh, but it made subsequent every live performance thereafter. And so go listen to the Pulse live version of that. Then go listen to the Gdansk version of that. Uh, Steve DeStanislao uh, was the drummer for that. And you can see him tapping out 16th notes on his, on his leg with his, his other um, his, uh, drumstick. And then he's using that to time when he hits the bell for that song. Rather than, than using a click track, 
he, he just used his leg, right? Which is fine. He's a drummer. He can do that. But the problem is it sped the song up. So the, the bell is being hit too fast. And unfortunately, that sets the tone for the whole album. So if you listen to Gdansk and Pompeii, they are both too fast for my taste. Um, and there's one of them, and I think it's Gdansk, that it particularly feels... It's like it... Like, you can tell the band just needs to pull it back a little bit, you know. So I think it might have improved by the time it got to Pompeii. But anyway, go listen to those three just to hear how that song moves and how what the importance of he hearing that bell ring is for the, the rest of the pace of the song. It really uh, becomes a song that, um, in some cases, in one case in particular, it's just not even listenable because it's too fast. So anyway, that's my number uh, That's my number three. Don't, don't sleep on Division Bell. That's a great album. Oh yeah! Uh, if you're out there listening, um, really, uh, in my opinion, a lot better than Momentary Lapse of Reason. Uh, and yeah. I think they won a Grammy for Marooned, didn't they? Maroon is the only album, uh, the only um, song that Pink Floyd has won a Grammy on, as far as I'm aware. Yeah, but that's a that's a crying shame. And it's a, it's an instrumental. It's, a, it's right. I mean, that's such a strange thing to win a Grammy for. I mean, I guess considering your other your your rest of your catalog. Did you get the? Uh, they just released it on vinyl again. Did you? Which one? Which version do you have? Um, I have, I have the re the re release. Okay. Yeah, I don't have, and that, and that may be the one of the few albums that I don't have both the original pressing. Well, I've got multiple pressings of several albums, um, but that may be one of the few that I don't have the original pressing, the ninety four ish one, because that was a kind of a weird time for even vinyl pressings anyway. Uh, whereas prior to that, it was like, well, that was a standard release. Like, we're going to release some vinyl because people still listen to vinyl in 87 for mm -hmm. uh, Momentary Lapse of Reason. They definitely listen to vinyl in 77. They definitely listen to vinyl in 83 for uh, 77 for Animals, 83 for Final Cut. But that, that 94, 95 time frame, that was a weird time for music. It was like, I mean, I think the industry was like, well, I don't, I mean... People were actively getting rid of their vinyl collection the way that people are actively getting rid of their CD collections now, um, which is great for me because <laughs> I've been buying them up. I love it. But um, anyway, so yeah, I, I do not have, I don't believe I've got the original pressing of that one in the same way that Pulse, it had a very limited release and that Joker sold for like, it was like $1,200 for uh, for a used uh, version of that before they repressed Pulse right. like they just did. So if you were holding on to one of those... When you saw, saw that the they were going to re-release it, you tried to, probably tried to unload it. Yeah, dump it quick, right? I mean, I guess there's still some value in having that original, but um, but no, that's that's one of the few I don't have. I do have, I've got multiple versions of Dark Side of the Moon, multiple versions of Wish You Were Here. Um, I've got a first pressing hanging on my wall of each of these D Dark Side of the Moon, Wish You Were Here, and Animals, and they all sound fantastic. So I listened to each of them one time. I mean, literally mint. Um, and I and I listened to them one time, and I stuck them on the wall. I just want them to be there and preserved. Um, which you could argue there's probably a better way to do that, but that's the that's what I wanted to do. And then I went back and rebought the originals of those, and then plus I, the repressings of them later. So you may have paid for the Astoria. I could, and in part I did, I'm sure. So our final two songs are both songs that Kyle and I have, and the first one is going to be Us and Them. And if you refer back, I believe it was our May 6th, episode May of, 6, last, 2018, of 2018 yeah. we did uh, Dark Side of the Moon and Kyle and I uh, basically without knowing it had the same thoughts on the album pretty much track by track and for both of us this was, we think this is the strongest song mm -hmm. uh, on the album um, we were talking last night about how good the version on Pulse is yes and uh, if you 
if you haven't listened to Pulse, I think it's the greatest live album ever made. It's my favorite live album. Yeah, I I, I think I agree with you on that one. Greatest live um, album ever made. Because we're sitting here talking about songs, and we're saying the definitive versions are the ones that are on Pulse and not the studio, song, yeah. studio version. Uh, so we won't go as deep into us and them. Um, I don't think we could treat it as good as we did back in May. Yeah. I, mean, I, just, I don't think we can. So, I mean, we're both... Not without exercise and writing the motes and, the, the right. and that sort of So thing. we're both in agreement that that us and them is is one of their one of their better songs. So, kind of the finale here um, is appropriately so. <laughs> yeah, appropriately so is going to be comfortably numb. And for me and Kyle, the version on Pulse is the definitive version. Uh, we were listening to it right before we started the podcast. the The solo on that to close that out. It's my favorite guitar solo of all time. Um, I honestly think this version on Pulse, it's it's like tied with Purple Rain. It's my favorite song of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't realize Purple Rain was yes, out there. I love Purple Rain. Did you see David Gilmore cover Purple Rain as a tribute to Prince? No. Yeah. Are you serious? Oh, yeah, yeah. Wow. No, a piece of it. He teased into it. He didn't, you know, because when Prince died, uh, there was a lot of artists right. that covered Purple Rain or something else. But a lot of it was Purple Rain. Uh, because it's it's slow and somber. You don't want to cover a little red Corvette when somebody right, dies. Right. You know, it's not a funeral song, right? And so a lot of people did that. Well, they in the solo for Comfortably Numb, I believe it was Comfortably Numb, um, the screen behind them goes purple, and then he teases into. I mean, it's probably a minute and a half worth of Purple Rain, and you can hear the background singers, you know, doing the oohs and ahs. But he never, nobody ever sings. I don't think purple rain. They don't. They don't but sing you know that part, but is. you know exactly what it is. And then it goes back from being purple back to whatever they had on the screen before or the lights did. And then it's the solo for comfortably numb. We need to look that up. Right yeah, after I'm this. gonna have to. <laughs> if I find it, I'll, I'll post it on one of our social media. Um, when I get through listening to this, I, I don't listen to Run Like Hell after it because you're you're spent. Yeah, oh, it's yeah. such a it's such a long build, and then the payoff is so good. Um, it, this version you don't hear it any. It's it's not recorded this way any other time that's commercially available. No, well, even in bootlegs, he doesn't hit it just like that right. uh, any other time. And <clears throat> on the video, the the visual of it is just amazing because that tour was a spectacle of all spectacles. Man, I wish I could have gone to that. And and there's you know you got this. We call I think we used to watch it in college. We called it the spacecraft. You got the spacecraft coming down. Yeah. You know that's originally a, a mirror ball, mm-hmm. and it kicks in with the lasers and the, you know. So they got a Guinness Book of World Records for a number of things on this tour. Uh-huh. That was the largest traveling mirror ball. Really? Yes. Well, then it turns into the spaceship, mm-hmm. and then you know you got just this flood of lights and and so smoke. That and, they got a Guinness World Guinness Book of World Records for the largest like I think it's a halogen or something bulb mm-hmm. that. Period. Like that was a record at the time, and they also got a record at the time for the largest laser laser light show in terms of like count of lasers. Anyway. Just just phenomenal. Yeah. Um, and obviously you're a musician and you can explain a lot of the technical aspects of it better, but my favorite, it's just, I, I don't have anything else I can say about it because it's just, if it doesn't get you going, something's wrong, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, that's, I, I so I've, again, I've been playing guitar for, for close to, to 30 years now. And uh, that is one, people know I'm a big Pink Floyd fan. 
And but they think it's odd that I don't really play Pink Floyd songs. And part of it is because for the longest time I didn't want the mystery to be taken away. Because when you learn a song and you learn the techniques of it and all that and can play it, it does take away some of that mystery. And to me, Pink Floyd is all about mystery. I finally sucked it up and learned the solo for that. And uh, note for note, and I could play the whole thing pulse version, except for the the little the build up that that happens. I can, I mean, I'm telling you, I know I know note for note exactly what he's doing. I know how to bend the whammy bar. I know the effects that he's using. I still can't make it sound like that, <laughs> you know. And so nobody that's, else can either. No, I mean, when you hear a tribute so, band play that part, they, I mean, it's never it. Mm -mm. It's close sometimes. I mean, they tribute bands do a better job of getting great gig in the sky right than they do that part of that solo. And you'll notice when you're watching Pulse, the camera, there's very specific times that the camera is zoomed in on his guitar. As soon as that happens, it, the, the camera's off of him, you know, and he was real secretive about what he would do and how he would make effects, um, I guess because that was part of his secret sauce. Right, know? right. But, um, but anyway, this solo, I was describing it to you last night, it's kind of like the hero's journey. I mean, you've got, the so like Homer's Odyssey and all, you know, any classic uh, um, story the hero goes to this journey, and so there's a at the beginning there's a you know there's some kind of conflict, and then over the course of time it builds, and then it finally crescendos, and then it levels off. And uh, go look up what what uh, what a, a figure of the hero's journey looks like, and that's the way this song feels to me. I mean, it truly has a really strong beginning, and there's a journey, and then it's a build, it's a build, it's a build, and then there's finally a climax, and then this sweet release. I mean, it's just, a, that to me is the perfect structure of a song, uh, or of a solo. So, uh, what I can add to this is definitely the Pulse version is the best recorded version ever heard, and amongst most, uh, amongst a lot of guitarists, not most, but a lot of guitarists, they would say that that is the best solo of all time. David Gilmour says his performance in New Orleans, out of every... You asked him what was your best um, solo that you played for, for Comfortably Numb. His answer, without hesitation, is New Orleans 1994 Division Bell Tour. And that's the one I wish we had a great recording of. There, If you go search in New Orleans Comfortably Numb Solo 1994, you'll pull up t probably two versions on YouTube of this. It's the same, of course, it's the same performance, but two different versions of it. One's a cleaned-up version. The recording just was not that great. There's a lot of crowd sounds. I mean, I mean, you, it just did not come across well. But I know what he's talking about. The, I mean, he just nailed it on that one. He just absolutely nailed that solo. So I wish we could have a very high quality version of that come out. But, um, but anyway, that way I could say that one was my favorite version. But, um, but yeah, com what else is there to say about about comfortably numb? You know, I think. I think so we you were telling me last night. That this is the way he wanted to record it, and not. Well, so specifically, um, part of the riff that happened between Roger and David uh, was in uh, when they were recording the wall. David, being a guitarist, wrote like a really ballsy version of this, and 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 you can hear this on better on Delicate Sound of Thunder, the first B minor chord that just kind of cracks you in the ribs, is uh, the way that he wrote it. It was much heavier, much darker. Whereas what Roger wanted for the album was something that fit where it was better. There's not a song on there that has this dark, heavy B minor, you know, kind of sound. So for guitarists, that's very satisfying in the same way that playing Sorrow is satisfying. You just crank it up and let that echo go, I don't know. And so um, this may be the most I've, I've done 
I've done vocal effects. Ooh. So <laughs> I don't charge any extra for any of it, though, just so you know. Um, so um, anyway, it's I think both of them are right. You know, if you listen to The Wall, it's hard to argue that that's not a damn near perfect album, and the way that Comfortably Numb is on that album sounds right. Yes, it's not as gritty. It doesn't punch you in the gut the way that the, the live version does. Uh, so Roger was right. But David was right because, man, it sounds fantastic when he hits it like that, right? So by the time, that was 87, by the time it rolled around to the 94 Division Bell Tour, um, it or, uh, he, he had kind of dialed back the distortion a little bit. Um, on that first, that, you know, that, that gut punch. The solo on the wall, it just kind of trails off. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just kind of gets, it's like the mixer just dialed it down, and then you just hear these marching, these marches that goes into Waiting for the Worms. And so um, that is uh, what, what a special treat we get to hear is usually you don't just turn the band down, you know, like in a, in a live performance. So there needs to be some sort of end to right. this. And uh, you can hear there's two specific different things that he wrote for this. Um, that one for Delicate Sound of Thunder, and, and obviously the second for the Pulse uh, tour, the Division Bell tour. And um, and they sound, you can hear pieces of them. I mean, they say it has the same basic structure, but he did kind of move some things around and, and build on it. And so I don't know if that's what he intended to do at the end of the wall. We don't know what happened because it got turned down, but we know what he added to it. And, uh, and and I think what he added to it was something really special. I don't think there's anything more we can say about it. I'm I'm done. I can't. I'm it's, spent. <laughs> it's, a, it's a perfect. It's a perfect song. Um, Kyle, thank you so much. Absolutely, man. I'm I'm glad to be back, and I'll I'll come back anytime, man. We we can do more Pink Floyd episodes. We can do. I, man, we can do album by album if you want to. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, so everybody out there listening, we really appreciate it. Chris will be back with me next week. And uh, I want to ask you to follow us on Twitter at Digital Killed. Like our Facebook page. And you can f- follow us on Instagram at Digital Killed, the Radio Star Podcast. And subscribe uh, via iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, however you choose. Uh, and if you get a chance, go uh, leave, leave us a, a review on iTunes. Uh, it would greatly help us. Um, our numbers, uh, like I said last year, were up dramatically and Things like reviews and, and, and ratings on iTunes help expand our audience. So uh, it'll put more uh, more ears on the podcast, which is always welcome. Again, thanks to Kyle Null. Uh, we've had a great time. And uh, thanks for listening. And Chris and I will be back with you next week. <laughs>